I'm Karen Lewis, and welcome to Recovery Bites, a show that gets real about recovery, where we welcome voices in the field and voices of experience. Join me for candid interviews with experts in eating disorder and mental health recovery. Listeners can look forward to new perspectives, meaningful conversations, diverse connection, and compelling personal narratives that make a powerful difference in how we live. Episodes focus on life beyond recovery, the good and the not so good, the successes and the challenges, and the authentic accounts of recovered lives. Not their whole story, just bites. All right, everyone, here we go. Another one of those special gifts. Our guest for today is Jacqueline Eckern. And wait till you hear what she talks about from her own childhood experiences to what she's created to help people that are struggling with eating disorders today. So as always, let's just jump right in. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Recovery Bites. I am sitting across from another beautiful soul, and I can't wait for you to all hear everything that she has to offer. I would like to introduce all of you to Jacqueline Eckern. Jacqueline, welcome to the show. Thank you, Karen. It is lovely to be here. I'm so honored to have you. I'm so honored to work with you, be colleagues, know each other. So Jacqueline, can you tell the listeners a little bit about who you are and how you ended up here? Sure. Thank you, Karen. Um, It's really an honor to be on your show. And I am, let's see, I have a master's degree in psychology and I have a private practice and I'm also the founder of Eating Disorder Hope and Addiction Hope. And on a personal note, I live in Oregon and I've been married 22 years and I love dogs and I have a son. (laughs) By the way, I love that your son is like the afterthought after the dogs. I just want to point that out. Just wanted to say that. So just go in there. Jacqueline, share a little bit about your story, because I do know some of the things that went into your eating disorder. There was some early childhood trauma, physical disabilities and things such as that. And and I'm wondering, can we start where, how did this start for you? Because now look at what you've created and, and what you're doing now with, with, with your, with your life. I don't know why I said that, but. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Um, and I think it's a perfect example for listeners. Um, any pain we're in, if we can find, um, some meaning in it and use it to help others and contribute to society, that sure takes a lot of, uh, the ongoing suffering out of the pain. Um, not that it doesn't, you know, trauma, various levels of trauma can, can be with us for the long run on some level, but there's so much healing we can do. And there's so much we can contribute from what we learn from our journey. So, so yeah, I was born um, in 1966. So I'm 55. I don't even know. No, I'm 56. And um, we just had a birthday. (laughs) And 
I um, had, was born into a great family, very loving, very fortunate that way. But uh, when I was born, they said, oh, shoot, they called my parents back to the hospital and they said, you know, those little cute little rolls of uh, fat that babies have on their inner thigh, they were not matching. And they said, hey, we got a problem here. And one leg is going to be dramatically shorter than the other. And you're going to have to fix this. And so when I was three, um, we got the game plan together. And as therapists, I'm really glad it was four when it started. <laughs> Um, but I um, had to have my leg lengthened from the time I was four until I was about 14 were the procedures. And so it was traumatic and painful and invasive. So that entailed like breaking my femur and my tibia and eight ex uh, pins that were external. And then for three months, docs would come in and turn them each day to lengthen it. So I was very fortunate because in many parts of the world, you're just left with um, these issues, but it necessitated me being in California with a specialist team. My parents had no money and they were like 20 years old. And so they stayed back to take care of the family. So a lot of abandonment, um, physical pain and not knowing how to comfort myself through that. And um, a lot of people pleasing because of dealing with nurses and, you know, just if you, if you could be good enough, you could get your bed pulled out by the nursing station instead of being isolated in your room all the time. So that's kind of the, uh, the biggest trauma I have had that uh, I think led me to then be very judgmental of myself. I, I was the kid that was often last picked in um, lineups for sports and physical education or PE. And um, I limped a lot. Uh, eventually I was able to walk pretty normally, but it all through my childhood, I was on crutches and casts. I went to kindergarten in a wheelchair. So um, most of the time I had those procedures, I was alone as a young person. And, you know, at as mutual therapists, Karen, I think one of the things I developed was the, the concept of intellectualizing and being, um, ignoring my feelings. And, and so I thought, thought and thought a lot, which is still something I work on as a therapist with my clients and myself to be mindful, to be in the moment. You know, there's, there's so much that, ha that went into just this narrative. And that's talking about the trauma, not even talking about other things that go into eating disorders, such as your personality traits, such as anxiety, depression, family. It's like there, there's so much, but just in that alone, Jacqueline, I hear, you know, early childhood, physical trauma, your body not being quote unquote, right the separation, especially because you said you come from a really close-knit family. So the separation while you were in California and your your parents were, I, I believe, in Oregon, the people-pleasing, like for some reason that was really profound to me when you said it was the only way to get out of being in your room by yourself and feeling isolated is having the nurses pull your bed out. Like there's there's so much in just that. 
take us to where you are now. Take what you've learned from your experience and share what you do now, because it is pretty phenomenal. And, and I think it comes from such a heart place and from your early childhood experiences. Oh, thank you. Yeah, so I um, struggled pretty hard up until I was about 28. And then I went into treatment and met a great therapist, worked with her um, for about four years on and off. And I decided I was going to go back to school and become a therapist. And I started a private practice and loved it. But right after I started it, um, I was still in my internship. Um, right before I started the private practice, I was in my internship under Dr. Carla Garber in Fort Worth. I don't know if you've met her. She's awesome. And I said, I'm going to do a support group in Fort Worth. And I didn't know how to get anybody to come. So I had a Yahoo $8 a month website and I can't even handle my TV remote. So how this thing got going, I don't know, but it did. And we, we got the support group up there and it eventually evolved with me starting a little private practice after I finished my internship and all of that. But, um, the website took off and believe it or not, Karen, the first person to support the website was the founder of ED referral. You're kidding me. No, I'm not. She was a doll. I just loved an, an animal lover. And Monte Catini was, she kind of did it for us. She actually paid us to hang a little Monte Catini banner on the website. So we actually had revenue to continue growing and helping people. So that was, that was kind of a neat nuance to the story. So for a while I did private practice, which I love. And I, because it's so soulful. I mean, seeing glimpses, a people's soul is, is catnip to me, <laughs> but I also had this opportunity to kind of go more macro with the message of, hey, you, there is always hope and you can do so much with this. And, and I really wanted to touch lives. And so we grew the website and I did the private practice. Eventually I had hardly any clients and for up until recently, I have just run Eating Disorder Hope. And so that site um, offers information and resources. It's really a publisher site more than anything. And we have thousands and thousands of articles that I personally vet um, that are uh, written by doctors, psychiatrists, nurses, therapists about all the nuances of eating disorders. So it's a great resource for people that are struggling, especially if you have to drill down on an issue like PTSD and developing ARFID symptoms in your late 20s, that kind of thing, instead of just here's what anorexia is. <laughs> yeah, the site is unbelievable. And I, I also just sort of like going back a little bit before we get to eating disorder hope, not that I love that you suffered until you were in your, your 20s, but I love the narrative that you said at 28, I got help. And the reason why I say that is because I have clients that are in their 20s or their 30s and they feel like it's too late. Too late. I'm already this age. I'm already behind with my peers. I already don't have you know a career or whatever it is. And so the reality is it's never too late. And 
I can't imagine you would have seen yourself where you are now. That's another thing. I know that I know from my own experience and from my clients, when they think about being recovered, they think so far in the future that it feels unattainable. And you're like, I started as an intern with a website, like life builds on top of each other. And people so often just go into the future and say, well, I can't achieve that. I don't know if you have anything to share about that, anything to say. Yeah, those are my favorite topics. So I'm so excited to address that. So yeah, so in my 20s, I was a stockbroker because I decided, well, I got this jacked up leg. I don't look like other people. I'm insecure. And so I thought I had to be really cool and polished. And um, I lived downtown Portland at the time. And I would go spend all this money at Saks Fifth Avenue. And I didn't have two nickels to rub together to look all fancy. And I, and I tried to be this fake image, like I've got it all together and almost hide my suffering and certainly not have anyone know that I was internally defective, not just with my leg in my mind at that time, but also with the struggling with the eating disorder, there was so much shame over the burdens that it had caused my family, the ugliness, the 8 million uh, colleges I went to. It, it was just, there was a lot of train wreck stuff. I kept starting jobs, quitting jobs. And so I looked on paper very flaky. I think my family um, knew I had good values overall, although I made some questionable decisions at the time. But they, I was kind of seen as possibly not going to get it together. You know, that's you're that kid in the family. And I think they were very forgiving, but I, I, at least I interpreted that message. So it was very heavy at that time. So are you saying that's when you went into being a stockbroker because the image seemed, like you said, it was polished. It was, you dressed a certain way. Like, again, was it this whole idea that if, if, if I look a certain way, people will perceive me a certain way. And then maybe I know for myself, I thought I'll feel a certain way, but I never did. I never felt the way I wanted. I, I never felt the way I thought my image was projecting. Does that make sense? Did I say that Absolutely. correctly? And you're right. The eating disorder just got worse uh, pretending that. And I would have days I missed work because I had binged and purged. I, I mainly struggled with bulimia so much the day before that I just couldn't really show. And my face would be all bloated and I just felt miserable, but I, it never addressed the internal sense of worth that I was hungering for or the acceptance of, I mean, basically I, my leg has had so many surgeries on it. It's so others would say it's deformed. I love my leg. I take bubble baths and I pull my leg up like a yoga thing and kiss my leg, <laughs> but it took a long time to get there. So I hiding behind an image was a big deal. And I, I also sadly dated so many people um, to try to get them to buy the image that didn't know who I was and set myself up for rejection a lot too. And I bring that up because a lot of my clients um, have had patterns in, in my private practice have the patterns of choosing judgmental or emotionally evasive people. And that was certainly something else I struggled with, I think, to even further compound that message. Say a little bit now, again, and I, I apologize, I keep going back and forth in time. Say what eating disorder hope provides. What is it like? 
talk about the bigger picture, talk about the macro, because the message needs to be out there. Yeah. So I tried to, in a nutshell, create something that ex- that exemplified my values from the experience and live into those values, ACT-like. And I um, wanted a site to help others that were struggling with eating disorders and give them hope. And so what I figured I would do is the mission statement was in a nutshell to um, appreciate one's internal worth regardless of applause or accomplishments and um, to, to run with your gifts and talents inherently in you and, and find meaning and joy in your life. And that's what I learned from all those years of therapy. Like, God, what was that? When I had the apartment and the stockbroker and being a stockbroker was fun. I mean, it, it was interesting and stimulating, very cool job back then, but it was really more for the facade. Um, and, and the fulfillment part actually in that job came from the, the clients. I love my clients. I, you know, I was inherently a therapist. <laughs> Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. I love the idea, though, which is basically I what you were saying, like not living for the applause, not living for the accolades, you know, finding that self-worth from within. And then if you get the applause and the accolades, then wonderful. That's just another part of it. But if you don't, you still feel whole. You still feel worthy. You don't, using your words, feel flawed internally. And that, to me, is what I want people to achieve in the recovery. It's not just about cessation of behaviors. That's that's nothing that you know do you know what i'm saying yes can you share a little bit about what your thoughts are and and i don't know if you can speak to this but what are your thoughts about eating disorders and drug addiction and obviously i bring this up because you also have addiction hope now think about this jacqueline you're working with addiction so if Opioids is the highest, has the highest mortality rate of any mental illness. And then right below it is eating disorders. And so you are working with two really intense. So tell listeners, first of all, what do you notice about the comorbidity, the the dual diagnosis of people with addiction and eating disorders? How do we help is there one that you need to work with first? Because I know when I ran residential programs for eating disorders, if people had addiction, substance abuse, anything like that, we'd often say they have to deal with that first before they come to us, which, by the way, could be the accurate thing, but it felt imbalanced to me. So what are your thoughts there? It's complex, isn't it, Karen? I And this is just my opinion. Um I think if the addiction is severe enough um, in terms of sustaining life, that probably would need to be uh, the priority. Um, But I I really embrace treatment of both. And and I love uh, that the community has really evolved to treating um, co-occurring issues 
like addiction, but also um, the more complicated issues like bipolar disorder, borderline personality, and just anxiety and depression, which I certainly have had. And, you know, I do a lot of skills that I learned over the years to keep myself at a stable place and not fall into too much anxiety and depression. And it's gotten better over the years, but that, those things never really went away from me. I want to share that they just improved and I'm okay with that because I'm evolving. I, I didn't like, you know, just it, it. So anyway, what I think about addiction and eating disorders is it in 2013, we started addiction home, my husband and I, and we started it in Fort Worth. And the reason was because we had so many people reaching out with the co-occurring issue of whether drugs, um, alcohol, I guess we would call it substance use disorder, but also process uh, issues, process disorders like shopping, gambling, you name it. So pornography, pornography was actually the number one search term on addiction hope and still is. Uh, I don't know if it's number one, but it's still like in the top 10 of the search terms we see, um, both men and women, which is surprising. Well, no, it's not surprising because that sounds judgmental. It's just I didn't didn't realize how big of an issue that was. So with addiction and eating disorders, I think it makes complete sense that they would be interwoven for many folks because I think... Uh, a genetic predisposition towards anxiety, depression, coupled with trauma and life experiences can, can make uh, dealing with our feelings uh, very uncomfortable for a lot of us. And I think there's various ways we try to, uh, if you will, anesthetize our feelings, whether it's food or shopping or uh, drugs or sex or alcohol. And what we're learning in PET scans, and you could probably address this better than I can, but it's just that these receptors in our brain, the feel-good chemicals, serotonin, dopamine, norepinephrine, these things seemingly, from the research I've read, light up more for one person when they're exposed to, say, alcohol, and another person when, as was my case, uh, you binge uh, on a lot of sugar. <laughs> So I think they're very interwoven and, and the suffering's the same. And the other issue is I care very deeply about changing the um, dynamic in the family because when one person steps up to the plate and deals with their pain and issues or genetically inherited predispositions or disorders, it can change the trajectory of the family line later. And that's really noble work. Well, it's very powerful when similar to what you're saying that, and this is also why it's so interesting when, when, when families use the client who's in treatment as the identified patient, then what we find out is as this quote unquote identified patient starts working on themselves, they come back into the family system. There's a lot of and, and I'm using the word dysfunction not as a negative, just as a reality. There's a lot of dysfunctions going on in the entire family system. Now, this person comes back and doesn't respond the same way to all of the stressors of the family. 
and the family starts noticing. And that's where the change begins. They start noticing they're not getting the same response. And so that's where, where family work can be amazing and dynamic. I don't know if you have any thoughts about that. I do. And I agree. I think family work is incredible and important because so many of the siblings, parents, caretakers have all suffered alongside the individual with addiction or eating disorders. And I think that the vast majority are so good hearted and caring and loving. And historically, families would get blamed in ways that was just unproductive and I don't even think accurate in, in many cases. It, it's just not simple. It's not because of how you were potty trained. It is so many factors of genetics and environment. So I think unless it's really, you know, serious abuse or something, I, to, to think of it critically of all the factors that went into this happening and then embracing the family as a support system at the level they're able to get because they have their own issues and they... You know, and, and just and moving towards forgiveness for issues that you're able to, because forgiveness, as we all know, is not about letting them off the hook. It's about unburdening that from yourself. But I also think it can take a long, long time, and that's okay. Each the cadence of our soul's development is not on a a nine to five schedule. It just happens as it happens. But that therapy and work that we can do with a really qualified therapist or treatment center can, can make such a difference. And they're very helpful for families, just basic things like communication skills and boundaries. I just love boundaries I'm, because they allow one, they help one to take care of themselves and recognize their needs and stand up for themselves. And also that frees them up to be more loving and non-reactionary to others in the family because they don't feel so vulnerable and overexposed. I think the the term boundaries has a negative connotation to some people. And the reality is, is boundaries can be healthy for everyone. Meaning it is healthy for a parent to have a boundary and say to their child, I am not gonna do this for you. You can do it. That's a healthy boundary. I'm not a parent, so I, I want to be very clear. I don't want to step out of my lane, but I just use that as an example, which is boundaries are so important. And like anything, they can be used for a positive or a negative. If your boundaries are too firm, if your boundaries are inflexible, you know, then yes, okay, then, then the boundaries have to be worked on. But I love that you brought up boundaries. There's something else that you brought up. And again, I think the theme for this episode is I'm just going to keep going back and forth, back and forth. What I wanted to talk about was you said, now you know how to navigate through life with your anxiety. And the reason why I bring this up is because I think often people look at therapists and recovered therapists as if we have worked through all of our anxiety, all of our depression, all of our fears, all of our insecurities. And that's not a human being. That's like a robot, somebody who has no anxieties, no fears, no insecurities. The difference is, is 
we have learned how to live in the world with it so it doesn't paralyze us. So we don't make decisions from our places of insecurity. So we understand why we're feeling this way. And I just wanted to to just touch on that because it's so important to know we're still human. I still have a lot of insecurities. I just understand them better and I can self-soothe. I can talk myself into a better state of mind. I can reach out for support. And so I just want, I think I just want to say thank you for saying that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So if this is helpful to anyone listening, I I have a pretty elaborate (laughs) self-nurturing program and it involves like in the morning, I have some quiet time where I read um, some spiritual stuff and I pray or meditate and then, and I get in a big cozy chair and I turn on my candle and I have my dogs and I put the blanket over me and I have my coffee and it's like just very grounding. And after I get done doing that, I typically will exercise not to control my body weight or any of that, but because it helps my brain. It helps me to not be, feel as depressed or anxious and I enjoy it. So I do that. And then I try to just be very gentle. And in my environment throughout the day, I, I have candles lit. I love scents. I try to wear soft, comfortable stuff. I try to find little micro hits, if you will, of joy in the day. And it could be, you know, looking at a little herb plant I'm growing and it's shooting up, but I try to be mindful and present and enjoy that or, or notice the mountains, things like that. I'm constantly trying to nurture myself and be compassionate with myself. And, and I think compassion is another really important thing in recovery. And, and I was just talking to the client about this last night, who's a real super achiever. And I was like, okay, I know you're not going to go from driving yourself endlessly to um, laying on the couch and and watching a show and eating potato chips overnight. <laughs> but it it was figuring out that does beating ourselves up work? I mean, is that working for you? If it's not some of Brene's, Brene Brown's work and and Karen Neff's work on self compassion, I think has some good insights about how how it's really maybe not as helpful and that the same compassion we shine on others um, so well in most cases, it's good if we can almost refract that light and shine it on ourselves. And it it actually makes it easier to recover from a slip or an issue and um, to live truer to your values. For example, health is my value. There's goals um, you know, under health that I try to maintain. But if that goes out the window one day, that is not, that doesn't define me because I know, and I don't, I try not to beat myself up. And I just go back to, Hey, I want to live a long, happy, healthy life. I want to be sentient and take care of my brain. And I, these are the behaviors I choose to do, but it's a very different way of looking at how you, um, I don't know, perform in life that it's not just about crossing off goals, but but having values that you're acknowledging and living into, doing more of what you enjoy, care about love, find meaning in, and less of that <laughs> performance stuff that I was so entrenched in. Well, this is what I what I discuss with my clients all the time, which is, are you living in your values? Or are you living against, are you going against them? Because 
the eating disorder very rarely aligns with your values. And, and I've used this example before, like, I don't lie. I'm a very honest person. I lied through my teeth in my eating disorder. I wanted, I valued connection and, you know, intimacy and all that. My eating disorder made me isolate, pull away more, not able to connect. So it's it's so interesting how how our minds work or minded and, and what I've experienced with my clients is that the farther away you get from your values, the more you think, I'm going to go harder on the eating disorder. I'm not getting it. So I'm going to go harder and harder. And that's what keeps pulling you farther and farther away. And it's not until you stop and say, is this getting me where I want? That you recognize that the harder you go into the behaviors and away from your values, again, the farther away you get from the life you truly want. I've had clients that say to me, no, Karen, you don't get it. I truly value thinness. That is my value. And I say, let's break it down. What are you imagining you will get from thinness? Because there's a, a concept that you've created. Well, I, I imagine that I will be popular and loved. Oh, so what you really value is friendships to be seen. It's not thinness. It's you're, you're missing, you're missing what's all underneath. And so I, I love it when, when you talk value work, cause you can always get under, no, 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 Karen, I swear to you, I really just value thinness. Mm, I think we're going to keep unpacking that because it's everything underneath. And we have the misperception that a body type is going to get it as opposed to being who you are. I I got to where I am in life by actually getting away from my eating disorder, being authentic, working hard. And, you know, there's no magic pill that gets you there, but we think the eating disorder is going to do it. And everybody knows there's no magic pill to get you to where you think you want to be in life, yet continue in the eating disorder, thinking that's going to do it, right? Absolutely. I agree. And uh, an important thing I'd like to add on to what you said there, because it was so wise, um, is that the analogy of you fall off the horse, you dust off and you get back on the horse. I am I have done that 8 million times and particularly in eating disorder behavior, I would fall back into it and I would be just so discouraged and depressed and feel bad physically too. You know, it was just a, a perfect storm. And one of the things my therapist taught me to do over those many years was, Hey, look how far you've come. Look back, look at the strides you've made. You may not be where you want to be yet, but you have made strides. And then I would put a stick of note on my desk at work and it would say no way out, but through. And so it was like, okay, I'm just going to accept that I feel really bad physically today and I'm disappointed. And what can I do? I can hydrate. I can be gentle with myself. I can, you know, if I possibly could take a nap at lunch in my car, whatever, and just forgive and move on towards the light, you know, the yeah. light, the, the value of health, because I did want to be healthy, but I do understand worshiping thinness because that really seemed like the ticket to me out of being defective. So that's a really interesting topic. 
Jacqueline, I feel like to some degree, because as much as I hate to say this, we're going to have to start closing up. I feel like this is a beautiful place to end. And I also feel like this is a beautiful second episode. <laughs> like just, I feel like we could go on and on and on. We are going to have to start winding down. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that you'd like to share with listeners before we end? Um, I, you know what I think if, if you can do this off the cuff, a couple of the profound lessons you've listened, you've learned from all these amazing uh, people that you've interviewed over the years. You're awesome. Wow. Um, and I have interviewed some incredible, you know, I say to people all the time, listen to the show. It's amazing. And it's not because of me. It's because of all the guests that I've had on. I have grown in my mind with everything. I, I, I often say, I feel like I'm getting a second graduate degree by doing this podcast. I'm getting a graduate degree in um, everything, diversity, spirituality. Um, I'm learning about, I really don't even think I could capture it. It's a lot. Everything. I'm learning about privilege. I'm learning about underprivileged. I'm learning about psychedelics because I had Adele LaFrance on. I'm learning about diversity and inclusion. I'm learning about people that have lost children to the eating disorder. I'm learning about ableism, chronic illness. I mean, I could just go on and on and on. I'm learning a lot. And I'm glad you asked that because I don't think I've reflected so much on it lately. Yeah, you do a deep dive into the human psyche and that's, there's so much to learn then. There's so much to learn. I'm always learning. So that's, that's where I benefit from the show. So Jacqueline, thank you so much for being on the show. I appreciate it very much. Karen, thank you for having me. All right, everyone, that does it for another episode of Recovery Bites. I look forward to speaking with each and every one of you next week. Take care and stay safe. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Recovery Bites. Be sure to visit recoverybitespodcast.com to join the conversation, access show notes, listen to past episodes, and more. You can also find us by searching for Recovery Bites on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and major podcast streaming players. For weekly episode releases, you can follow us at at Recovery Bites Pod on Instagram. If you're interested in becoming a guest on the show or to submit a guest request, please visit KarenLewisEDC.com forward slash podcast sign up to begin the process. I'd also like to send out a heartfelt thank you to my producer, Jen Galvin. It is unbelievable the magic she does behind the scenes. All right, everyone. See you next week for another Recovery Bite. Thanks for listening.